we're back. Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Uh, I am your co-host, Mike One, co-host also Mike, in a moment, coming to you still from quarantine in this awful hellscape called reality. Yeah, it's uh, it's been pretty depressing watching the news. It's it's really been awful, and our heart goes out to so many people, as, as yep. you said to me before the show. Like, this is a hard one to ramp up and do. I mean, we have... We have a fun episode prepared. It's going to be a little bit breaking news on the Scorsese Apple stuff. It's going to be a top fives episode. That was really fun to put together. I'm just hoping our, our show could be a bit of a distraction for folks, a, a happy getaway for an hour, you know, put it, put it their headphones in and have some fun. So hopefully we'll change our tone of voice as we get, you know, rolling here. <laughs> but it, it's, it's, it's hard to do. Yeah, hopefully this episode will be the exact opposite of what our Twitter feed has been because of what I've turned it into over the last 24 hours or so. So, uh, yeah, you know, there's there's darkness in the world, a lot of shit going on. But like you said, this can hopefully be a distraction and an oasis and have some fun as we do have a, a fun episode planned here. We got some news. We got a top five episode. Mike, why don't you break it down? What are we talking about today? Well, we're going to get into the Scorsese Apple stuff in a minute, but the Top Fives episode is kind of the opposite of what we did last week with our Top Five Film World Letdowns. Today, well, it's not quite the opposite, but today we're going to talk about films we were shocked to love. And this kind of goes hand in hand with my projections about what the Scorsese Apple movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, might be. (laughs) It just, there's so many red flags with it, and I want to get into it. But, you know, I think think this was fun to put together. We got more stories for you on the back half, but some news up front. Yeah, so the big news and the uh, the inspiration for this top five, in a way, in a, in a kind of a, a, I guess a roundabout way, is like what Mike said, Killers of the Flower Moon. We have some big news on it, and that news is that Apple is going to now partner with Paramount in the funding and the distribution and the back end of Killers of the Flower Moon, that infamous movie we've previewed a bunch of times featuring uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro. Yeah, luckily, Kim Masters of The Hollywood Reporter, she broke it all down this morning for us, Mike. And, you know, look, we covered this story a couple different times on MMOWs, on Oscar Race Checkpoints. We went over Scorsese's box office history a few months ago. He's been hit and miss, but the hits have basically encouraged people to give him these bigger and bigger budgets. Obviously, the Netflix effect from The Irishman, and nobody knows what that made. That was another encouragement or an enabling, perhaps. (laughs) It depends on how you look at it, I guess. So the backstory is here. Paramount wanted to scale the budget down on this project from 180 to 150. And thinking that Marty would go over that, but it wouldn't go into danger territory, forcing a $600 million profit at the box office to to actually make, make that profit, a $600 million gross at the box office, I should say. So what happened was Marty and Leo sat down and they said, all right, we have to rewrite this script. And Leonardo was going to play the hero detective in the story. Now he's playing the nephew of the villain character who is Robert De Niro in this movie. So Paramount's like, this doesn't seem as commercial as we hoped it would be. And again, I I kind of been questioning the commercial nature of this project from the jump. Like, it is a story about killing the killings of Native Americans. I mean, it is a downtrodden, it's a rough subject about the FBI here. Yeah, it, it's it's not 
commercially viable except for the fact that it's got three of the biggest names in the industry attached to it, which is going to... And, and, and Marty's proven to still be a brand unto himself. I mean, a Martin Scorsese movie still in 2019, 2020, or 2021 when this is supposed to come out, it, it's it's like a Tarantino movie. It's an event movie still. He still has that draw. Leo and De Niro obviously still have their draws as well. But yeah, I'm with you. This story is a little bizarre and it's added in its bizarreness is the fact that Paramount seemed to like the first version of the script better. Right. And that kind of added to Leo taking this and shopping it and Leo's manager taking this and shopping it on their own to see if they can get side funding from another entity. And Kim Masters' article is brilliant because it's it quotes a Paramount executive, a top Paramount executive saying, we're not making it, but we're not not making it which is the most weirdest quote I've ever heard. But essentially, Paramount is still on board here. If this movie gets Oscar noms, they'll be invited to the show. Apple is paying the full budget. That is the biggest takeaway that I have here. We know, and we covered it before, Netflix was in the you know in the negotiations. Maybe they were going to take this on like they did The Irishman. Maybe that was just totally bogus, and Apple was just... You know, they're negotiating against themselves here in a way. Yeah, I wonder where the story started leaking from because the original, uh, the first story that broke on this said that everybody, every major studio was looking to get a piece of this and wanted it on the action that they ended up selling it to Apple. To me, that sounds like it might have come from the Leonardo DiCaprio camp. Maybe it was leaked by his manager because otherwise, why? I mean, who would know what studios specifically are in on this and in the bidding on this and what created this tug of war as it was coined in that original story. So I think this has all been coming out. If you read the tea leaves, it makes sense to think that it would all be coming out from Leo's side and his camp side. Hmm. So was Netflix original actually as involved as they made it sound? Well, I mean, only a few people would really know for sure. Yeah, we don't know for sure. That That's, that's one fact of the matter yeah. here. And I, I don't, like you said, who, who really knows the full right. scope of it? What's fascinating to me, though, is looking at some of the results of this whole ordeal. The movie is getting a full theatrical re- release around the world. This is different uh, from what Apple's doing with Greyhound. Essentially, what they're doing with the Tom Hanks submarine movie is they bought it. They bought the distribution rights for $70 million on a $50 million budget that Sony had, right. and they're going to put it on a digital format. That, that's a quote from a couple articles as well. Soon, and everybody expects it to be soon. So basically, that's a pandemic buy, and obvious you know, tea leave reading says that they're going to put that on their streaming service, Apple right. TV+. Plus. This is different. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon is different from what they are doing with On the Rocks over at Apple. On the Rocks is being produced by A24. It is a multi-year pact where that production company, which is known for putting out one good movie after another, is going to basically do the groundwork, and then Apple has a lot of the back end with that movie. All three of these movies, though, are going to be Apple original films. So they're paying a premium for three different types of development, film development strategies. Because Apple's going to be the developer of Killers of the Flower Moon. They're going to go with, uh, my guess is they're going to go with what Marty and Leo want to do here. But the cost, Michael, the cost could skyrocket for this film. If it is north of $180 million budget, you add marketing costs that Paramount's going to front and then you add uh the cost of the oscars campaign you're looking at 250 to 350 million dollars at the end of the day most likely so so that's what paramount kind of wanted to get it is it's a ton and that's what kind of paramount 
why they gave their blessing for Leo's side to go shop this because they were staring at, look, this price tag is already at like $180 million just for the budget of this thing. If you guys are working on a second version of the script, and we prefer the first version anyway, if you're doing rewrites and we're not sold on the rewrites, why don't you go ahead and see what you can get? So Apple steps up to the plate. Apple pitches whatever they pitch to get the rights to this. They're going to get the exclusive, I would guess, streaming rights after it's had its theatrical run. Mm -hmm. But it does keep that theatrical run, which will satisfy and placate Paramount outside of it. It's going to make Marty Scorsese happy because he wished the Irishman had a bigger run and he still believes in the theatrical experience and is trying to hold that end up, you know, basically by himself too. So it it looks like a lot of people walk away happy. I I, I agree with you that Apple... It's more fascinating in that they seem to have paid more to have the creative license because they get full creative control of this now. They've wrestled it away from from Paramount and whether that means... We'll just give it to Marty and Leo and trust their vision or whether Apple's actually going to step in remains to be seen, I guess. But yeah, I mean, you're totally right. The cost for this thing is going to balloon even further than the $200 it seems to already be at. So again, to get back to the three different types of productions here, they're basically relying on A24 and Sofia Coppola with uh, On the Rocks. Mm -hmm. They bought a finished product with Greyhound. That's that's a, a movie's done and uh, they they bought the product they're just distributing it and here Paramount is going to be dis- the distributor they're going to get that percentage like you said they're also going to be involved in the marketing and they're going to front the marketing costs which have to be paid back to Paramount so it's a low risk move for Paramount but Paramount is essentially running the show in terms of getting this movie out to people so they know how to do that they know yeah, how which to is campaign smart. Yeah, they know how to campaign for the Oscars. So this is this could be a really smart way of doing business for Apple and that they're leaning on people that know what they're doing. I, I agree. And I, like I said, I think everybody's walking away from this deal pretty satisfied with the pieces they end up with. It's obvious, I think, more than anything, that Paramount was just uncomfortable. I mean, on a lot of levels, they were uncomfortable with the price tag. They were uncomfortable with the script changes. They seem to be uncomfortable, go, you know, shouldering this entire load themselves. They have no problem doing the marketing and the distribution channels are already set up. So it makes sense for them to become basically a glorified distributor in this and taking money off of that end of it. So, And there's precedent with that. They pr- distributed the right. Wolf of Wall Street and they made a, you know, a solid 20 million off of that deal. I don't know if they were the distributors for Hugo and Silence, the two money losers the recent money losers from scorsese but they basically have done played this role before for other studios i think paramount was uh, the original distributor of the hulk too when the mcu was being built i think they were the original they took the first hulk movie and distributed it or maybe it was iron man i don't remember off the top of my head but i'm pretty sure it was paramount who did one of the first marvel movies and just played distributor while the while marvel studios was behind the production of it all so yeah they have experience in this field they've had success in doing this setup as well so i don't know what the downside is other than the red flags that you and i kind of commented on with the production itself which is no longer paramount's problem anyway except that the less money this movie makes the less money they'll get back in the distributing side Yeah, so finally I wanted to take a look at what Apple is getting out of this, because essentially you wonder what it's worth to them to get into the prestige movie business, to get into the Oscar movie business in a way. They took a stab at it last year. They had some very unfortunate circumstances with the AFI Film Festival canceling The Banker, obviously reviewed The Banker with Samuel Jackson and, uh, and Anthony Mackie this past quarantine, but that movie went directly to their streaming service after they had hoped to, you know, angle it for an Oscar release. 
it means something to Apple to get into this game because it's worked for Netflix, even though Netflix did, did did a totally different strategy from the jump. I mean, they worked with Kerry Fukunaga on Beasts of No Nation. They worked with uh, D. Rees on Mudbound, two yeah. rising talents, and then they put the might of their wallets behind the Oscar campaigns for those films, and they made mistakes. They made mistakes on relatively conservative gambles with those movies, and still they got kind of their foot in the door. This is like Apple basically saying, all right, we're going to team up with all our best friends, you know, all our friends that know exactly what they're doing, that they've been doing this for 100 years. We're going to pay a premium. We're going to pay a premium for them to shepherd us in this process. And now you'll wonder what this movie has to make for Apple to say it's a worthwhile venture. Does it have to get Oscar noms? Does it have to make maybe it's, you know, half of its budget or half of the profit profitability that normal movies have to make when they're in theaters and then it's worth it to Apple just to have this movie in their library going forward? It's worth the, uh, the losses, essentially. I wonder the impact on Amazon this is having. Because what's sticking out most to me is look how much money it costs for a new studio to be a legitimate Oscar contender. You just went over what Netflix had to do, and we know about Netflix's balance sheet and the debt they run and the money they make and the revenue they make. Apple's doing the same thing now. It's costing them hundreds of millions of dollars to get in bed with the prestige names in Hollywood and try to enter these. Obviously, the Oscars carry a meaning for these new studios because they think it brings them relevancy, and they're not wrong. It certainly helps bring eyes to the product after the shows and the awards have been given out. Right. And I wonder Amazon sitting there they've been kind of dragging their feet with Amazon Studios as far as making new theatrical features as is I wonder if this is them saying you know what have at it boys we'll, we'll keep making our series we'll keep our critically acclaimed Emmys coming in and we'll, we're you know if we get anywhere with our movie industry or our movie features great but otherwise we'll focus on documentary features we'll focus on TV shows we're not going to spend a zillion dollars to keep up with these two new studios who by the way haven't really won anything Anyway, yet, uh, you know, I know Apple's very, very new. Netflix is less new. They've been around making original properties for about a half a decade now, but they still haven't really gotten much of anything. Laura Dern's win this past Oscars was their biggest Oscar win so far. Yeah, it's very true. And Netflix has it's taken some big swings and they've spent a lot of money. But right. look how it's working for them. I mean, they've become essentially the biggest studio on the planet, the biggest movie studio. And they're acting as such. And when all of these other IPs get bought up by all these other new streaming services, Netflix doesn't need it as much because we're all glued to their original properties. With Amazon, I still think they depend a little more on the library, but they're also mitigating a lot of the risks. I would say with with their movie studio because they're buying a lot of finished products they're also buying smaller projects as it is and they're not taking huge swings at the oscars with huge campaigns mike but they're also what they're doing is they're letting things play out with the proper windows so that they're making back money the money they can make back uh, at the movie theaters, at the box office. They're even sneaking around looking at AMC. Maybe they'll vertically integrate. And we were talking about you know, the laws that would need to be changed. Well, laws would need to be changed for that to happen upon some you know, further research from us since we last talked about that thing. So basically, Amazon seems like they are, they're making enough money that they don't have to worry about making the studio into the number one uh, on the planet. Or they don't have that grab for, uh, for relevant and power that Netflix seems to have or that Apple is starting to have now. They also have different avenues. I mean, Amazon Studios is not 
Amazon living and dying. Just like Apple Studios is not Apple living and dying. I mean, they have other right. avenues. Netflix is crazy. I mean, they're a studio. That's what they are right now. They live and die with their with their studio model. So it's a little more important for them to be seen as relevant anyway. And that's why they've spent the money they have and they've gotten to the prestige position they are. I tell you what, though, everything I've watched on Apple TV Plus has been quality. For the oh, most yeah. part, you know yeah. the banker was pro- the banker was probably the worst thing I watched on there. I know you watched the first episode of Servant that you really didn't like, but I watched Dickinson, Mythic Quest, real quick, a Morning Show. I'm almost done with Defending Jacob, so they're like four for five for me. And even Servant, which wasn't great, and the banker, which content wise I didn't think were were that great. I, I mean, they're professionally done. Yeah, you can. I mean, it's not like it's an amateur hour type thing. They're very well done and well made, and you can tell it's people that know what they're doing are behind the camera and in front of the camera. There, obviously, you don't need me to tell you Samuel Jackson and Anthony Mackie know how to act. But, I, I, yeah, I, I think it's it's bright times ahead. I'm very excited to see Apple take this step. I think they're very wise too. They don't seem to make a lot of missteps, even though working in the movie industry is kind of an unfound territory for them. And it's always interesting to see when a new studio makes its first baby steps to see what direction they're going to set themselves up for in the future. Um, I would think Apple or Amazon can carry more debt than something like Netflix would be able to do just because of the machines that are behind them. Yeah. But uh, who knows? Netflix is still the the big, uh, the big guy in the clubhouse right now, swinging the biggest stick, I would think. Yeah, they're positioned best right now, I would say, Netflix, even though Disney Plus has a lot of power behind them, even though, like right. you said, Apple does as well. It's going to be interesting to see these streaming wars con- commence and continue once this quarantine, hopefully when this quarantine is over, you know, and when people basically take that expense off their books because it's not essential to them they'd rather spend their disposable income elsewhere who is going to be left standing who's going to be at a loss when that happens and i think you know apple buying something like greyhound to put on their uh to put on their service sooner than later and then buying these long-term big name properties is what that's what they need for for that cheap price of 5.99 a month or whatever it is like that becomes essential for you and I for sure. And do, does it become essential for everybody else is the question. Well, it's going to be, there's a lot of stuff to keep our eyes on. And we had, like we said, when we were talking about the, uh, the killers of the flower moon, just the plot of it, we have red flags that popped up for us. And hopefully it'll be something that, uh, we are surprisingly in love with afterwards. And I, think I would that's... be shocked to love. We are the masters of the transition in the segue, and that's where we'll go next. We're going to top off this episode with our top five shocked to love countdown. We were each going to highlight five films that, you know, they could be critically acclaimed. They could be just uh, not so much. Maybe we love them for different reasons. Maybe we love them uh, in spite of themselves. Maybe we love them as much as you do, and they're beloved all over the place. But these are our top five movies that we are most surprised coming out of watching that we did enjoy quite a lot. Michael, why don't you take number five? Yeah, there's going to be a lot of me problems in my uh, (laughs) explanations here, but my number five is Halloween H2O. H2O caught me off guard, Michael, with how good it was when we rewatched it for our Halloween series uh, two years ago. I had seen it years ago. I don't know if it was early 2000s. I didn't see it when it just came out. I I wasn't a a huge Halloween fan growing up like you were, but I think I became more of a John Carpenter student later on in in my college life, in my film school life, and I started studying his films, and then I watched some offshoots, and I, I came across H2O. I remember liking it, but it wasn't like something that that stuck with me forever. So 
it was our rewatch series, and we had started with Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. <laughs> yes. And then we went for the original, and I kind of, you know, considered the original the best film of the franchise, and I figured that was going to be really one of the only bright spots of this review because you roped me into it, and <laughs> I was just terrified of the whole endeavor. But you were so enthusiastic that I was going along with you. So Halloween 2 comes along, and it sucks, and I'm killing it. <laughs> I think we did H2O after that. I think we did it like in the middle, like at the beginning stages of this rewatch. And I was floored by how good this movie was. It's not as good as the original, but like in terms of production values, in terms of the storytelling and how invested I was in these characters, you picked the exact right time to thrust that rewatch on me. And I was, I was shocked to enjoy H2O as much as I did, because I think there are some superlatives in that film for the entire Halloween franchise, including the greatest reunion shot in cinematic history that I I can remember of two characters coming back together i mean th- this was one of the most pleasant surprises i've had with a film review on our show oh man that makes my heart so happy and i really needed that today uh yeah i forgot frankly i i got lucky with that because i forgot just how qual- maybe i never even examined it to be honest with you because i was just such a michael myers fanboy but i didn't realize how quality that script and that movie was until we got to it on the rewatch and I was, I was maybe as as surprised as you were. I was like god damn this is a high quality type of sequel and we did do that in a row we did Halloween 1 and 2 and then we followed it up with H2O because we were doing kind of a Laurie Strode timeline of events there and uh, yeah that series got dark it had its down moments for sure but uh, H2O was not one of those down moments that, that I'm with you that was a great great sequel it revitalized my whole uh, rewatch series. And you, you, it was lucky that that happened when it did because we got into Halloween 4, then Halloween 5, and then obviously the Rob Zombie movies. And we kind of love to hate some of those in yes. a way. So those episodes played really well and people like them. I mean, there's some of our you know biggest clicks uh, on those episodes at the time. So it was a successful series for us. But I think if I wasn't put in a good mood after H2O, it might not have gone <laughs> Saved by the high-quality script that was Halloween H2O. My number five stays in the John Carpenter realm. I know H2O wasn't a Carpenter-specific property, but look, in 2010, Carpenter released his first directorial film in nine years, and it was called The Ward. And it had, unfortunately, the same critical reception as his previous two films, which would have been 2001's Vampires and 1998's infamous flop Ghosts of Mars. So, I mean, it's suffice to say Carpenter wasn't exactly on a directorial hot streak at that time the ward was this little straight to dvd release Mm. look it's not great i'm not going to tell you it's going to be a cult classic i'm not going to tell you it's it's this awesome horror movie but i just remember really liking it and really appreciating the effort you could clearly see carpenter was putting forth and is trying to get back to the genre and 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 like embracing this horror trope and these horror messages which was nice to see because the guy really hadn't had a horror hit in like 15 years at that point and that movie lit a fire in me to go down the rabbit hole of Carpenter and kind of reintroduce myself to some of his classics and just reacquaint myself with just how good this guy was at telling a story and Carpenter's strength has always been like 
highlighting our biggest fears that are already there. Like, we're scared of the mm. fog. We're scared of the boogeyman in the closet. Mental the war- institutions. Exactly. Amber Heard. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we're scared <laughs> of all those things. The war did that. It, it was just another one of those in the line of Carpenter's psyche, psyching us out. And then I went back and watched The Fog. I went back and watched In the Mouth of Madness. And it just really... I knew I loved the guy because what he did introducing Michael Myers into my life, but it was nice to see him all these years later still clearly give a shit about taking something that scares all of us in the back of our heads and putting his own twist on it. And I think that helped him stay in the game to where Jason Blum could reach out to him and have him be a part of the Halloween remake eight years afterwards uh, in 2018's Halloween uh, by David Gordon Green. So The War 2010, uh, it's my number five. I think you're more of a horror connoisseur at a younger age. So when I, when I saw this movie in 2010, I didn't have the the filmography of uh, horror movies to like go back to and enjoy this one with. And I haven't come back to it since it came out. I remember watching it like in one of those first weeks, whether it's on VOD or or DVD or something. But I I watched it and I I, I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. It was kind of a strange. Uh, watch for me i would be shocked to love this movie now do you, when was the last have you come come back to it since then and can you is there anything that stood out to you where you're like uh you know th- this is worth rewatching for this reason i remember the twist was basic it wasn't like this oh my god i can't believe that happened and you could probably even guess it but it was still one of those twists where I appreciated it at the end of the movie because he had done enough to lead you there, but it was still kind of a surprise. It could have gone either way at that point. And anytime you're left at basically this like who done it type of setup, especially in the horror genre, if you're left questioning whether or not the obvious is actually going to happen, that's pretty much all you could ask for out of that kind of setup. You're right. It's not like the greatest movie ever made. It's certainly not like this horror legend classic. It's not one, probably Carpenter's even one of his best movies, but I just loved it because I appreciated the effort I saw from it and the lifeblood that I knew, you know, I knew John Carpenter still had a pulse in the horror genre and that meant a lot to me at the time. So I I know the twist at the end is probably what I would highlight most, but it's a quick thing too. It's like a 93 minute type of movie that gets you in and out. There's a lot of young stars that were attached to it. And I think there's a lot of reasons to, to watch and appreciate it at this moment in time, 2010 picture. Well, I'm going to have to get back to it then, Mike. Uh, The ward is a movie that I'm guessing you kind of like the production value. I'm guessing you like the craft in it. And, uh, yeah, I'll have to revisit it because I have been curious. I mean, it shows up once in a while on uh, premium channels, VOD, streaming services. I've been, you know, tempted to click on it. So maybe I'll do that. Mike, you are going to go with your number four now because it leads into mine in a way. Yeah, and it's staying in the horror genre. And I wanted to just highlight this. And I I said a lot about it, so I'll be quick here. But my number four was Dr. Sleep. I (laughs) thought Dr. Sleep was going to be something I not only disliked, but something I walked out of the theater laughing at. Because I... When I heard it was the melding of both Stephen King's The Shining and and Kubrick's The Shining, I was like, there's no way. You can't do that successfully because it doesn't make sense, especially after seeing the trailers and the chalkboard cracking. I was like, oh, my God, what are we doing here? I walked out just fucking impressed. Mike Flanagan has earned my trust forever here and after, after what he did with Dr. Sleep. It was one of my, I think it was in my top 10 uh, graded movies for 2019 as well. I was blown away by it. I've said a lot about it. Go back and re-listen to our not only review of Dr. Sleep, but our Mike Mike and Oscars award show for the uh, 2019-2020. We've released that the day before this past Academy Awards. But uh, I almost 
for number four, put Little Women. <laughs> Me too. I almost put Little Women for number four, but I didn't because I saw what you had at number four, which is actually very close to Little Women in its own way, and I have a feeling you're going to echo a lot of the same points I would have said about Little Women from last year anyway. So, Michael, what is your number four? So the, the truth is I was braced for a pretty good movie by the time I actually saw Little Women. So I was expecting something really good. I don't know if I was expecting something as great as it was, something that would <laughs> captivate me as much as I I, uh, I was captivated. But I wasn't shocked to love number four. The movie, or Little Women at number four, the movie I was shocked to love, Mike, last year was Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. And there's a lot going into this backstory because you and I had argued bitterly over that Fox Disney <laughs> deal and how Disney was treating the Fox properties. And to be fair, the Fox properties that Disney had newly acquired, we were hearing about the new mutants and how they were burying the new mutants. Mm -hmm. We were hearing about Ad Astra and how they were not putting a lot behind the campaign for Ad Astra. Then Ad Astra comes out. You know, we have some a mixed review, even though it's one of our most listened to episodes. No, in space, no one can hear you storyboard. Maybe your title got people, but basically, I think <laughs> I doubt that. But thank you. Well, I think that uh, I think that we we loved certain things about it, but it, it didn't feel like an Oscar movie. And I still kind of stayed with Disney for a moment there, and I didn't really want to get on the Fox bandwagon yet. Well, I went into Jojo Rabbit, Michael. I went into Jojo Rabbit thinking that this was going to be the anything but. Anything but this movie wins the Oscar. I'll be happy, right? And because I was just so like poisoned by our argument, it really got me in a, in a, in a sad state where I was like, I, they can't do this movie correctly. Mr. Feinberg, a guy that we worship and that we uh, we pray to every night, he was basically saying like, you know, I'm kind of offended by how they're they're handling this. And, 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 you know, in the lead up to this or basically with the ingredients involved, like right. he didn't say he was offended, but he said he was basically worried about the project. Mm -hmm. and, and that worried me about the project. And it almost felt like uh, the alt pick and the, uh, the word alt doesn't necessarily have good connotations for us these days, at sure least with our, po with our politics. Right. <laughs> so when this film won the Grosch Audience Award, we were surprised and we were kind of negative about it when it happened, even though I think I think we we liked the audaciousness of it but we were also hearing reviews that the movie really doesn't get all that deep so it's going to be another shape of water at best where it's it's a movie that kind of just says the right things in a way but really it doesn't get deep into anything well I've, I haven't seen a World War II movie this funny since The Producers, obviously. And that's, yeah. you know, that's a satire of a different way. And when I sat down in this movie theaters, after in the movie theaters, really, I should say movie theaters, plural, because I watched it two days in a row, and then I went back to it a million times. The first few scenes are crazy, and they don't <laughs> they don't satisfy, you, you know, they, they don't solve your worries, let's just say. No. So, so, <laughs> you're freaking out. I'm freaking out with the first few scenes. They're, they're effed up, and they're strange. And then you realize, and at least I realize that, wait a minute, I've loved Taika Waititi's whole career with a, with a few exceptions. Why, why didn't I think this was going to be a better movie? Because it's a great movie for the rest of the way. And it does get surprisingly deep at times. And, and you're, you're working with kids, you're working with kids of different ages. So you have so many characters that you relate so much to. You have one of the most likable characters in all, you know, all recorded time with the Scarlett Johansson mother. And I just thought this was like, 
a, a film that was so well written, so well crafted. Obviously, it's been rewarded since then with that uh, best original sc- or best adapted screenplay Oscar for Taika. So. This was a, a shock to me that I loved it. I think at best I was hoping it, I, I might, you know, tolerate it. Not even like it. I wasn't even expecting to like it. But the fact that I love this movie and it's probably the movie from that year that I rewatched the most. And if we did the Mike, Mike and Oscars all over again or a redux or a five years later thing. Yeah. This is like the movie that that sticks with me, you know, more than so many others that were probably higher on my Mike, Mike and Oscar top 10 list last year. So this this is a film that's aged really well for me. It's a great movie. Yeah, we both give a lot of credence to when a director is able to walk this impossibly or seemingly impossible tightrope like Taika Waititi did with that, especially you're right going into that, hearing all the things we were hearing about it from people we we trusted. And man, maybe the most heart-tugging movie of 2019 as well. Oh my God. It gets you so emotionally invested. Uh, Further underscored, our our worries were at the time, uh, even though it did win at the Toronto International Film Festival, um, it still carries a 58 Metascore True. to this day. I mean, The Sword of Truth has a 70. <laughs> Downton <laughs> Abbey has a 64. <laughs> what? <laughs> I swear to God, I looked this up last night. So, I, I mean, I think we were justified in our concerns, and maybe that lowered our expectations enough to think that this has plenty of room to surprise. But, yeah, I mean, what a movie that is. Uh, and I'm with you. We were both cheering on Oscar night when that did win. It was a no-lose situation for us come adapted screenplay because True. it was either going to be Little Women or it was going to be Jojo Rabbit, and we were happy with either one. And it ended up being Jojo Rabbit, and Taika Waititi uh, basically runs Disney right now, because in part because of what he did with that movie. My number three, mm-hmm. uh, you're kicking off the genre, and I'm going to kind of try to stay genre by genre with you. So my number three is a Star Wars movie. It's episode eight. I, oh. of the two of us, am not the biggest Star Wars guy no, and not, not the biggest Star Wars Mike. Uh, I was not, you know, seeped in the culture and see- seeped in the geekdom of it. That was certainly more your territory. So I, these movies never really spoke to me the way they had so many other people. I appreciated them for what they were. I, I-, I watched them all numerous times. I even took a day off of school in high school with a couple friends to watch all six uh, on the day after episode three debuted. So, I mean, I-, I have a history with Star Wars. They just weren't, you know, they weren't what they were to you. They weren't what they were to Ken Knapsack to me. They were just really good movies until episode eight came along and episode eight i just loved the diversion of expectation and no star wars movie had ever really spoken to me in the way that episode eight did and what ryan johnson did with that script and what you're going to find is what these surprise to love picks of mine are all pretty much directors that have wowed themselves and endeared themselves to me because of the risks they took Maybe no more so than what Ryan Johnson did with that episode eight script because it had no business taking as many chances as it did, and he got vilified for it. I mean, to this day, there's plenty of people online who were jumping at the bit to tell you just how horrible a movie and a screenplay and a job Ryan Johnson put forth for episode eight, and how could Disney possibly have let that go? But if you put episode eight up against episode nine, what we got from J.J. Abrams, I mean, it's a no contest as far as which one is critically better, which one makes you think more. I would argue which one makes you feel more. I know that's up for debate, but man, the job Ryan Johnson did, I was not prepared to be as blown away and as invested in any Star Wars movies than I was in episode eight because it just hadn't happened in the seven previous for me. So I am hoping that when I actually sit down with episode nine, I'll have more fun with it 
than I did at the first watch. I, I kind of have told myself that I really got to give it another chance because I love Star Wars so much. But your mention of Episode Eight here reminds me of why I love Star Wars so much because there really are these films that are like top five of, of, of those years. Mm. And, and Last Jedi was a top five movie of that year for me. My, my pick is going to be as well. And, you know, they have all timers on their resume with uh, with the A New Hope and Empire, etc. So, I mean, th- there are great, unequivocally great films to where you will take a whole day off of school and watch them all. Right. Even Revenge of the Sith is pretty damn good. Kind of has a kooky beginning, but it, the, the end of that is tremendous. Yeah. I think that The Last Jedi was perhaps the most political film. It certainly is the most polarizing film of the Star Wars saga. I wonder if it was vilified not only in some of the fandom, but within that uh, Disney, you know, wing of their, oh, of sure. their empire. I'm sure. Uh, and that's the way it seems to me. That's yeah. why all the retconning is mm-hmm. kind of, a, you know, a twisting of the knife for you and I. And then what I hope that I can do in a rewatch of episode nine is I hope that I can just say, all right, they're going for for fan service, what I call fan service. They're trying to make a happier film for the fans who were kind of downtrodden after the last movie. Maybe the politics pissed them off on the one hand. And I get that. I I understand that. But also you have to deal with some heavy stuff in episode eight. And I like that. And you like that. And a lot of the fans, the hardcore fans out there do, do like that. The empire strikes back is a rough film to get through. You need a happier film after it. So this was the, you know, the empire of the, of the sequel trilogy in a, in a way, because there's a lot of heavy shit that's going on. I mean, they're facing some dire circumstances. And I think if you take that casino planet out of it, you, you might have had a much better movie, but you might have had a, a near-perfect movie. Anyway, there's a, there's a lot of heavy stuff to deal with, and I, I understand why that would piss some fans off. For me, the, the, the guy who has to watch like a movie a night just to stay on top of things, when, when you surprise me, even with negative shit, the fact that you can surprise me in a movie and, and do it so well, right. I, I'm happier by that. If, if you're only watching one movie a month, I understand that you want something happier. And I guess that's that's me trying to be more mature about my hate for The Rise of Skywalker. Maybe the casino is why I enjoyed it so much. I have to <laughs> think about my thought. But what was your number three here, Michael? <laughs> my number three is Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. And... We go back to 2016 and 15, I believe. There were rumors of a production gone awry. There were costly reshoots. There were rumors that the director was basically thrown out of the room and that the editors and that Kathleen Kennedy were trying to piece this thing together and get it right. There was a trailer with Felicity Jones stating the theme of the movie. This is a (laughs) rebellion, isn't it? I rebel. And that scene has been famously and gloriously and thankfully taken out of the film because it was such a corny setup. I think the alarm in that trailer was was something I kind of liked at the beginning. It was kind of rousing. And then it got really annoying when I saw that trailer a hundred times. So this was the point for me a year after The Force Awakens where I had watched The Force Awakens on, you know, Blu-ray. And I was like, oh, man, this movie wasn't as good as I remembered it. I was happy to get a fresh Star Wars movie. I loved Act 1. But, damn, it wasn't the masterpiece I thought it was. It is kind of like the South Park guy said, a reunion special in a way. And I was like, all right, that's fine. But now I, I really need a good movie. Well, so you, you read all into the production woes. 
And Rogue One just looks like it's going to be a bomb, at least critically speaking. Yeah. It gets that 65 meta score, which is kind of polite. It's like a D- Downton Abbey polite meta score, we've learned. <laughs> the Rotten Tomato scores, I don't remember them, but I, I think this one wasn't getting a huge critical, uh, you know, just rave reviews. At least I didn't pay attention to them when I actually sat my butt down into the theater. So when I do that, this is a, a, a more of a team on a mission story than it is just about Felicity Jones, whose character was seemed a little weak in the trailer. So you get a bunch of characters to enjoy. You get a hilarious droid in the film, which is not something they've been able to pull off uh, with, with to that level. True. And uh, I love that. Then you get this breakneck pace. And they're hopping from one planet to another. You're not lingering in in one for too long. But somehow they make that pace really work in Rogue One, where I don't think they made it work in The the Rise of Skywalker. They kind of, you know, the flip side of the coin or the, the, the other side of the sword, I guess, in this case. The other side of the saber, you know those pointy things out of Kylo's saber? You know, if you're not a good swordsman, you can kind of poke your forearm with one of those at times. I would. I would have lost so many arms if I was a Jedi. (laughs) That. Yeah. Michael, I think Rogue One is a hell of a film. There's an ending of this movie that you won't find in any other Star Wars movie. There's comedy that I don't think you have uh, in any other movie, maybe with the exception of Han and Leia and Empire, which was really funny. But there's also, I think, the most satisfying scene nostalgic scene in, in any movie of the decade, really, yeah. at the end of this one. So as Great Robert... Scene. Yeah, as Robert McKee says, an adaptation in his book, Story, wow him in the end, and you've got a hit. And my God, was I wowed in the end, on top of everything else, on top of the fun that I was having. So Rogue One, to me, is, is, is I was shocked to love it in, in that room, in that movie theater. Yeah, despite, I mean, no matter how you really feel about that movie, you could if you're sitting in the theater for all of it, it doesn't matter what kind of fan of Star Wars you are, or what kind of fan of the movie you are, at least, if nothing else, you get that scene at the end, and you could have hated the whole thing, there's no way, they nailed that scene at the end, and that's going to draw you anybody in. It doesn't matter who you are. So they, like you said, they nailed the ending, if nothing else. But I know a lot of people that share, you know, your praise of it too. I, I know it was a polarizing movie, and Star Wars, ever since they've been reintroduced since Episode Seven for our, this generation, has kind of been a polarizing property in a lot of ways. I mean, Episode Nine had plenty of people, plenty of detractors. We were among them. So, uh, but. It, there's good things to be said about it, and there's good things to be said about Rogue One as well. And I just keep thinking of that last scene, man. God, God. And it foreshadowed that they were going to try different types of yeah. stories, and and that was really exciting to me. That's why the the, the you know the the Last Jedi kind of capitalized on that fact, and I think they were basically emboldened to go the last Jedi route because people were in for the, in in terms of box office, Rogue One was a huge hit. So people were in for it. And then people were, you know, in for it with the rise of, uh, I keep calling it confusing the three. (laughs) They were in for the last Jedi in terms of box office. And then all of the trolls came out and they were very upset or Ewoks or (laughs) what do they want to be called? I don't don't know. I would love it if we call Star Wars trolls, the Ewoks, but don't they win in the end? So we can't have that. (laughs) They did win in the end at least they're winning right now unfortunately (laughs) mike what's your number two my number two also comes from a uh, recently released movie i think it was back in 2018 and i hated the hype for this movie i thought there was no way i would ever come around on it and i thought that people were overblowing it from the start and that would be a star is born wow and i hated 
the fact that every Oscar pundit had this movie in their top three for every category in the lead up to it. I said, there's no way this type of movie is going to be what everybody thinks it is. It can't be because for it to be that type of movie, it's going to need to be impressive from scene one all the way through the end of the movie. It's going to be something that you can't take your eyes off of. It's going to be something that sticks in your head for days on end. And then we got into the theater and black eyes started playing at Coachella for the first time in my life. And I looked at you and I said, God damn it, (laughs) because I knew I was sold and I knew there was a chance I could have been wrong. Now, it wasn't even the movie that really had me thinking that I was shockingly in love with this after the fact, because it's not like I fell in love with this right after leaving the theater. It was the lack of respect A Star is Born maintained amongst critics and Oscars pundit as the Oscars drew nearer. It was abominable to me. That of the two sing-songy movies that were up for awards this year, what we got in Bohemian Rhapsody could not hold a candle to the performances, to the script, to the blocking and the cinematography, and all that that we got in A Star is Born. You could quibble and quabble with the last 20 minutes of what Bohemian Rhapsody did. Mm. Sure. Fine. I would argue it's not as powerful as the last 20 minutes of A Star is Born, but I can understand the argument at least. But the two hours leading up to that? No way. And that's what made me fall in love with A Star is Born, specifically the lack of respect Bradley Cooper got for doing double duty and pulling off what I still think was the best lead male performance of 2018. It it was a film that I had expected to, to love, and I think we were both surprised a little bit that the ending didn't land for us at the time yeah. necessarily as, as well as the first half of the film was. But yeah, I mean, in the middle of this movie, you I, I remember seeing you, you were just like seething at how good it was. <laughs> I hate and you're it. like, this is like the greatest movie ever <laughs> midway, you know, when, when Gaga's doing, you know, the crazy scene where she's, uh, you know, just showing us that uh, she does not have human vocal cords, but it's some angel from on high, what she was doing there. <laughs> Mike, I think, uh, I think the end of that movie is a, is a tough thing to overcome, and you gotta kind of agree with it. I think upon rewatch, and I have rewatched it since. I know you have too. So I think, I think I, I, I bracing for it more. I I, I feel better about it. Yeah, and it makes it's more definitely sense to me. easier to swallow if you know it's coming. I agree. It's tough to take on first reaction, but I also counter with this. I have listened to the song Black Eyes conservatively. Seventeen to 25,000 times since that movie came out. And I can't say that about any other song for any other movie. You've also referenced it 17 to 20,000 times on our podcast. I don't know if you know that. It has that going for it as well. Mike, my number two also involves our podcast, like a lot of these references do. I I almost had this one too, Mike, not to cut you off. I almost put this one. But we're, we're, we're going with our pod in many ways. It's not a shameful way or shameless way of uh, shouting out previous episodes, but it is the truth. I mean, I think we've hyped ourselves up so much for a lot of the movies that we've had to study for this podcast that, it, you know, recency bias on top of the fact that we've been living for this makes us, you know, extra, I guess, sentimental about some recent films. And sure. this is a recent film we did for a rewatch series in, our, in terms of our Pixar movies films of Pixar playlist there on SoundCloud, if I can shamelessly pitch it and be a hypocrite <laughs> right now, Michael. It's Brave. Brave. So good. I was out of college, 
and I was working and my uncle brought me down to Texas to visit my cousins and I'd spent time with my older cousins, uh, Kristen and Tony. I really didn't spend time with my cousin Kelly enough and I wanted the QT with her and and I think, you know, we kind of decided like spur of the moment, let's go see a movie and we picked this one and we had just come off of a couple years in a row of Wally Up and Toy Story Three, perhaps the the three best movies of the franchise, right. if not the definitely the three best in a row. And I did not see Cars Two because I never liked Cars One at the time. So I really saved not, yourself there, <laughs> right? Uh, but I didn't. There wasn't a mark on Pixar's resume for me at this time. I was coming off the back to back great to back great movies, so. I'm in my prime of reading fantasy fiction, which I call a prime, and I think that's the correct way to characterize it. I'm reading Game of Thrones. I'm reading all kinds of epic fantasy sword and sorcery stuff. Uh, again, it's my prime. Michael, I'm getting sadder. I think Kelly and I enjoyed this movie, and uh, she's she's an easy laugh, which is which is great because I make a lot of corny jokes. So I think we enjoyed the theatrical movie going experience. We got there early. I'm making her laugh. We're goofing around. We had fun. Bottom line. But I didn't expect I didn't expect a, a magical fairy tale about witches and bears. I didn't expect a mother-daughter film. I would have picked another movie, I think, with my cousin than, than um, the mother-daughter film and tr- you know trying not to cry in the seat next to her and then feeling guilty about, I love my mom too. And then we don't look at each other at the end of this movie because we're both holding back tears. But bottom line is my shame and uh, you know my, my upbringing in toxic masculinity leading to said shame did not allow me to enjoy this movie in the moment as much as I should have because we go back to this during our Pixar rewatch and this movie is hilarious from start to finish. Yes. It is a great story. It's a fairy tale that unfolds perfectly. I mean, we have become connoisseurs of fairy tales rewatching all the Disney films, all the Pixar movies at that stage in our study. I was shocked to love this movie as much as I did during our, our Pixar series rewatch because it is a great film. And, it, and, you know, in terms of the movies that I had forgotten about before I started this podcast and then I've rediscovered since, you know, turning on the microphones with you, this is probably the biggest shift in, in my movie-going memory uh, in terms of any film, and it's brave. Yeah, it's up there for me, too, and it's one of those films that the more you think about it, you find yourself thinking, where is the love for this? Why isn't this one held in such high regard? It's not Wally. It's not Toy Story 3, but it's damn closer to those than it is to The Good Dinosaur, which I don't think a lot of people would think <laughs> of if you asked them about Brave. It's almost unfair because how can you underrate something that went on to win the best animated feature category like Brave did, but yet right. still somehow this flies under the radar and I'm with you. I, I mean, I was not more impressed by anything in our Pixar rewatch than I was about the lack of respect Brave got versus how good all around that movie is and how enjoyable the watching experience of it is. It's 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 one of the few films where I do like a 180 on it, and yeah. it's and it's a me problem. It's the movie's always been great. I just had expectations that were entirely different uh, than than what I got at the movie theater. So maybe that was a marketing problem, but it was more likely a me problem. And in this case, it was a, a beautiful rediscovery. And I you know luckily I wasn't a jerk about it, and, and Kelly and I still had a fun time, and it didn't really matter because <laughs> it was just it was cool to hang out at that time i mean she was like 11 or 12 my younger cousin and i was you know i was 20 something coming right. back and it was a fun movie day but at the same time i don't want to cry in front of my 11 year old cousin and <laughs> i almost good. did in 
that probably soured me on the experience. That's what I was going to say. You were putting way too much pressure on yourself to A, not cry, and B, put on the stand-up comedy, cool older cousin performance yes, that you yes. had to. So you had mother emotions in mind than you were to be invested and brave. So I could understand you High kind of overlooking situation. it. High stress situation, yes. <laughs> we'll go to number one. My number one is two movies, and I'm cheating, and it's a top five list. And honestly, if you don't expect that from me by now, you haven't been listening. So I have two movies for my, my number one, but they serve the same purpose. Uh, and they're both all-timers, and they are All the President's Men and All About Eve. Almost and on my list. Yeah, I can agree with these. It's not because both movies start with the same word, uh, although I do appreciate that from a meta standpoint. Okay. It is... I watched both of these movies out of a sense of duty more than a sense of desire. For All About Eve, I watched that because we went back and did a retrospective for the 1950s Best Actress Race, uh, and All About Eve obviously had two nominations from that movie, so we had to go watch. I watched that for the first time. Uh, And All All the President's Men, I watched just out of a duty of I have to watch this movie because I haven't seen it yet and it's a glaring hole in my film watching resume I'm willing to suffer some glaring holes I'm not willing to suffer others so I had to get to this one and I finally did probably six seven eight years ago for the first time so you're thinking these movies will be nutritious perhaps but not necessarily movies you will enjoy overrated it's homework yeah overrated yeah I thought I thought and this is exactly why I love them because my thought with older cinema at the time was that it was such a stupid thought, and it's one many people still have today, but it's it's the reason we study history in classrooms as well. It's what can we have possibly learned? What could these movies that are 50, 60, 40 years old possibly have to tell me about today's society? What can I possibly learn about movie making in the industry today that I can't learn better from any movie made after 1990? And it was mm. so selfish and self-aggrandizing a thought. And of course, I mean, it, it opened the world to me, and I know it's such a neophyte thought, but I truly had this idea that Movies can be great regardless of the time in which they were made. And All About Eve was made in 1950 and has just been copied. I mean, its remake just basically, it it was 10 times nominated just a couple years ago in The Favorite, right? It was one of our favorite movies of the year. It's a movie that has been a trailblazer. And I I hadn't heard many people talking about it because I wasn't as seeped into the film criticism world then as I was as I am now. Clearly, it was something that I just thought ha- got these high marks that was kind of overblown and overrated, and it probably wouldn't hold a candle to something like Sunset Boulevard, which even came out in the same year. And I don't understand what all the big deal is. Why this was one of the most nominated movies of all time. It probably wouldn't do as well now. I had the same mindset as the people who make the arguments. Well, Bill Russell wouldn't do well in today's NBA because the game's totally changed. That was the exact same mindset I had for both of these movies. And I was blown away and I was a damn fool, Michael. A fool, I say. These are two of the greatest movies of all time for good reason. And if you are one of these people that think decent film hasn't been made since before you were born, you are a fool. Open your mind. I was like you once. You can be saved. I have a similar story here. I don't know if it's as extreme uh, or as latent. So I'm going to b- break your balls before I get into telling my story of what a hypocrite I am. Please do. It's essentially the same story. I am between my freshman and sophomore years in college and my freshman year, 
I basically watched all of the dorm room classics. Again, mm-hmm. you're watching 90s films, 2000 films, maybe some 80s films from our childhoods. You're really not going back into classic Hollywood. And maybe I would watch The Godfather, stuff like that. But right. this is kind of as far back as you'd go. Now, unlike you, I, I think I had more of the, the film culture in my life. So I've seen more of the classics. And I think I was burned by some of the classics in my high school years. Like I watched... Hitchcock's Vertigo in high school and I didn't really like it it was kind of a chore for me at that time I've come to respect that movie much more Mm -hmm. but at the time I'm like she has fake eyebrows those don't look real this is a stupid costume and then when I watched The Birds my second Hitchcock film I watched it in high school I believe one of my senior year classes where we're just like it's the second semester of senior year let's do anything to make the time go faster The Birds is a bit schlocky and hokey and it's still genius i'll rewatch it now and learn a hundred different things but at the time i'm like i know who alfred hitchcock is sure. he is he is this guy that gets kind of schlocky that makes you know these elevated horror films in a way or he takes a gamble on a psychological thriller and he'll he'll do well but he's not for me he had one good shower scene in one good movie with janet lee and he's been riding those coattails well i didn't even get there yet i didn't this that's a crazy thing like i am so ignorant at this point in college that i'm like i don't even need to watch psycho or i don't right. even need to you know i don't even need to watch his other 10 movies that everybody says are the best of all time so i the smart one here you're all the sheep yeah i know what this is i don't need to get into it so on a whim i watch rear window all right i watch it during the summer between you know semesters right and i never knew he could be so theatrical i never knew the performances could be so good in a hitchcock movie like jimmy stewart gives Mm -hmm. like thelma ritter and grace kelly given that film i never knew he could pull off a mystery listen to how i sound right now i never knew alfred hitchcock could pull off a mystery like this and i was shocked that he could handle a whodunit as well as he handled rear window and i just i laugh at myself now because you know a a year later i mean i'm re-watching or i'm watching for the first time so many of the hollywood Mm -hmm. classics i remember my friends and i we made lists and we're watching every best picture we can get our hands on we're renting movies by by stacks at the library and boom we're watching like sunset boulevard to all about eve we're watching all these movies on loop in our dorms and we're loving every second of it and a cold shiver of nostalgia just went up my spine when you said you were renting movies from the library that's what we were doing. And I was that's why I didn't, you know, become a lawyer in my defense here, because that was too much work to go to mock trial class. And I remember blowing that off in my sophomore year to watch like four movies a night. And that that's what I was doing, unfortunately. And I remember just mowing down a lot of the Hitchcock classics to the point where that next summer I took a Hitchcock class at Lincoln Center. I don't know if I pronounced his name that correctly that time, but I just Maybe just I roll with put it. the don't put the emphasis on the the, the latter half of the, the the name I guess <laughs> I will I will play way. only the latter half of the name and that pronunciation. <laughs> well, Mister H- Hitchcock, 
<laughs> it's like the whole hello guys, but cast. <laughs> well, Mr. Hitchcock, he said, uh, he said so much to me in that one movie watch that I was like, oh my god, it opened up a whole new world of cinema to me. You know, much like like Amelie or movies you watch that international cinema will open up a whole new world of cinema. For some people in this last Oscar season, the hope is, even though that you it's not your favorite film, the hope is that you know Parasite does that for a lot right. of folks. So. That's why this is my number one, and that's why Rear Window, you know, has to be the movie I was shocked to love because I'm an idiot, right? And I should have known it was great, and I should have seen it earlier. But when I did see it, you know, the floodgates were opened, and I can't. I haven't been able to stop watching movies ever since. It's funny how similarly we do think, even though we are diametrically opposed on many issues. Because going into this list, I had two films I knew were going to be on this list. I knew my number five. I knew I was going to have the ward and I knew my number one and I was debating whether I was going to put all about Eve or the old president's men. So I just cheated and put them both on there. But it's funny. I knew I had those in my mind before I saw your list. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> we have kind of the same layout here. <laughs> so, you have to though. Right. I mean, you have to, it's funny that we're both the type to say, this made me feel like the biggest idiot. <laughs> so that's why it's number one. <laughs> yes. That's exactly it. And that's why these lists are therapeutic in many ways. And hopefully a fun distraction for people out there going through some shit. So laugh at us. Yes, please do. We welcome it. And we will no doubt be laughing alongside with you at us. But as always, we do want to hear from you. What are your movies that you were most shocked to love? Give us a shout out. Let us know on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I'll give our addresses in a moment. But the best shout outs we will read uh, during an upcoming MMO Weekly. If you want to leave us any comments, questions, concerns or answer that question for us you can do so at mike mike and oscar on facebook mike mike and oscar on instagram at mm and oscar on twitter mike mike and oscar at gmail.com.com and on reddit we are available everywhere you hear podcasts and like mike said hopefully we're serving as a distraction for you through what's going on in the world through this quarantine and if so and if we're making you laugh a little bit if you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review on apple Podcasts, that would truly help us out a ton michael what is coming next from us us, and what are some words of wisdom to end on? Mike, Mike, and Oscar Weekly continues. We'll we'll save those Oscar race checkpoints for, for when we really need them. I think this week was kind of a hybrid. We wanted to do this top five, and we also did some news at the top of it. So, mm. yeah, we'll do more of that if we can uh, down the line. Next week, we do have Shirley with Elizabeth Moss and the uh, filmmaker of Madeline's Madeline uh, behind that movie that we're both excited Very to see. Excited. I believe it's, it's about Miss Shirley who... Uh, wrote the uh, short story The Lottery. So, Mike, your homework uh, for this week is to read the 20 page. Can you read 20 pages I can of, of, of prose? I can find a two paragraph summary online. I'm sure. <laughs> or what, who's that guy that cuts it down and uh, the, the, the recaps guy on YouTube? Oh, the man Mr. of recaps. recaps. The man yeah. of recaps. Phone can you him? watch the man of yeah. recaps? You know, uh, <laughs> Spark Notes edition Have him for the lottery. Yeah. It's a twenty-something page short story. I'll you should read be able to hit it, or 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 just listen to it on YouTube. I'm I'm gonna send you links every single day this week <laughs> to listen to a twenty-minute short story because it's fucked up. You'll like it. You like fucked up things. I do. I do enjoy the fucked up. 
You do. So <laughs> basically, everybody, words of wisdom, read the lottery and we'll all go wa- and watch Madeline's Madeline. And then we'll all go uh, watch Shirley this coming week. And I- I'm excited about a cool new movie. We'll have The Five Bloods and The King of Staten Island coming up after that. Hopefully we'll have Greyhound to review on Apple Plus, like we said at the top of this episode, you know, over the next month or so as well. Yeah, we're going to make this a movie world and movie year if it kills us somehow. We'll mm-hmm. drag these new pictures out <laughs> of the places. But guys, one reality sucks you can come watch these movies and hopefully have a laugh and kill some time with us here Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round without the stuffiness. We will see you very soon. See you.